0: In today's sermon text, Paul offers a further defense of his apostleship by laying open both his motivation for ministry and the message that he proclaims. Our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, "...having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer." Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him and working together with him we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain for he says at the acceptable time I listened to you and on the day of salvation I helped you behold now is the acceptable time behold now is the day of salvation O father Would you cause the gospel of Jesus Christ to so capture our hearts with His love down to the deepest parts of our souls so that our core motivation for life and our deepest convictions about the life to come are totally shaped by the Savior Himself. Cause us to know the fear of the Lord to be constrained by the love of Christ, and to be compelled with his gospel message. Would you please use this word to save sinners and to edify the saints? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost every outline that I consulted of the whole book of 2 Corinthians, as well as almost every commentary I looked at for this passage, connects the first two verses of chapter 6 with the flow of thought that's contained in the latter part of chapter 5, and it's for that reason that I've taken chapter 5 verse 11 all the way through chapter 6 verse 2 as our portion for today. And while that unit of Paul's thought is generally agreed upon as one kind of unit of thought, 5.11 to 6.2, pretty much nobody sees the divisions within that passage breaking down the exact same way. But to keep it simple, I'm going to deal with it in two main divisions. It's the two main parts of the way I see the passage working. Verses 11 through 15 of chapter 5, and verses 16 all the way through chapter 6 verse 2 uh, would be the second part. So first 11 to 15, and second 16 through 6, 2. And in order to properly read and understand this passage we can't just look at verse 11 and then down to 6 2 and forget the larger context that it's in in chapter 2 starting verse 14 all the way really into chapter 7 paul is giving a defense of his apostleship so we should ask about our passage which falls right in the middle of it what defense of paul's apostleship is he making in this portion of the text as we see that larger context of the letter, this passage begins to emerge with increasing clarity. The first part of the text, 11 to 15, is about Paul's motivation in gospel ministry. And the second part of the text is about Paul's message of gospel truth. We'll tackle it in that order. First, verse 11 to 15, the motive of Paul's ministry. But Well, because verse 11 begins with that word, therefore, in the Greek it's un, therefore, since then, we need to remember what came right before this. And if we look back to verse 10, we'll find that Paul is referring to the fact that Christ will one day judge all people. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And in verses 1 to 10, leading up to that verse about Christ's judgment, we see in Paul's own testimony... What happened to his inner man upon his conversion? That is, he was irreversibly persuaded that his home was secure with Christ in heaven. He knew that he had a heavenly home, and he knew that he would one day appear before the sovereign judge of all humanity. Therefore, he sought, verses 1 to 10, to live his life with courageous ambition to please the Lord. How did he do that? Verse 7, verse 9, Walking by faith in this lifetime, until, verse 10, he met his Redeemer face-to-face in the life to come. His second conclusion, from knowing that Christ is the judge of all men, which is our text for today, is that he will therefore, verse 11, seek to persuade others to join him in living in a way that pleases God. But here's the connection to Paul's defending his apostleship. If the Corinthians reject Paul, And they were certainly being tempted to do that. Some were still doing that. It meant Paul knew that they would also be rejecting his message of Jesus since Jesus made Paul his apostle ambassador. So again, our passage shows how the gospel had radically shaped Paul's life, verse 11 to 15, and the content of his ministry, verse 16 through chapter 6, verse 2. So as we begin to unpack this first section, 11 to 15, let your eyes land on 11a. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul's desire, in light of verse 10, is to persuade men to avoid the negative consequences of the coming judgment that everyone will experience before Christ So in our first point, I'm saying that a key motive for Paul's apostolic ministry is fear, the fear of the Lord. Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, he was therefore motivated to do something. His uppermost concern in life was driven by an accounting that he knew he would give before Jesus when this life was over and knowing that all men would give that same accounting to Christ. Knowing the fear of the Lord persuaded Paul to seek to persuade others to submit to Christ as Lord before it was everlastingly too late. This is a healthy fear of Christ, friends, which every believer ought to know, verse 11. Yes, believers are biblically commanded to fear the Lord as a motivation for our own perseverance in the faith. Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And then Hebrews 10.31 concludes that section by saying, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this is certainly a biblical, healthy motive for believers. The fear of the Lord. This fear leads to what Paul talks about in verse 12. He persuades men, of course, verse 11. And how Paul uh, speaks in verse 12 is actually the main point of verses 11 to, to 15. Verse 11 is one of the grounds. Verse 13 to 15 are further grounds for his main point, which he unpacks in verse 12. And he says it this way. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Again, verse 12 is the main point of verses 11 to 15. Verse 11 grounds it. Verse 13, 14 and 15 ground it. But the word in verse 12, occasion. We are giving you an occasion to be proud of us is is a military term. It was used in Paul's day to describe like a base of operations for a military from which an attack or a defense could be launched. So Paul is saying that he wants to give the Corinthians that kind of occasion. He wanted to give them that kind of support. The support structure that they needed to be able to boast, verse 12, or be proud of Paul's life and message over and against, quote, those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Well, that phrase, those who take pride in appearance and not in heart, is clearly an allusion back to 1 Samuel Chapter 16, where the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Paul knew that his opponents were taking pride. They were boasting in the externals. And the same thing certainly continues to happen in many today and in many spiritual circles today. But the reason this mattered to Paul is not because he was concerned about winning the popularity contest in Corinth. He knew all too well from his days as a Pharisee that it's natural in our sinful condition to try even to appear religious on the outside while having a heart, Matthew 5.18, that is far from the Lord. So Paul wanted to lovingly help the Corinthian Christians have an occasion, an artillery, a defense, for their trust in Paul's ministry over and against the attacks of those self-seeking ministers who had crept into Corinth. What were those people saying about Paul? Well, the charges that they were bringing against him included at least, we can deduce from First and Second Corinthians, that he preached the gospel free of charge. Number two, that he was not eloquent. Number three, that suffering marked his life. We could say suffering dominated his life. Number four, Paul minimized the public use of the sign gift, gifts, ecstatic expressions, visions, so forth. And fifth, Paul openly rejected what the Greco-Roman world, and Corinth in particular, held in such high esteem. That is the use of oratory eloquence and techniques in order to persuade people by an ungodly form of reasoning. And while Paul's opponents would contend that all those things and others would make him look weak, Paul is saying, those are actually the display of God's power in my life. Verse 13 explains, For, this is another ground for verse 12, For, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Well, I admit that I had a hard time With this verse at first, I pondered for a long time, how does the word for, gar in the Greek, work in support of verse 12? Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves. But the more we see it in the larger context of Paul's defense of his apostleship, and in light of verse 12, the more it makes sense. Paul is not saying, the way the NIV renders it, that he was out of his mind. For if we are out of our mind, that's not what he's saying. And the way the NAS puts it, if we are beside ourselves. He is saying that because he's motivated by the fear of the Lord, verse 11, he intentionally engages with people differently than he sometimes engages privately with the Lord. I think it's a reference to Paul talking about those personally edifying spiritual gifts versus the corporately edifying spiritual gifts, as he had already described to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters twelve through fourteen. So for example, Paul said in first Corinthians fourteen two, speaking in tongues quote, does not speak to men but to God. And the reason Paul exercised that gift privately instead of publicly is because to have spoken in tongues publicly would typically be, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, unfruitful. So one commentator helped me big time with uh, verse 13. To be out of our mind is therefore best seen as a reference to Paul's own ecstatic experiences in private worship. Most likely the use of speaking in tongues first corinthians fourteen eighteen fourteen twenty three and visions second corinthians twelve one to four Paul's point in verse thirteen is that his love for others here for the Corinthians causes him to consider their needs for persuasion verse eleven more important than his own spiritual private communion with God. in short, I believe verse thirteen is Paul explaining that while his accusers may be much more flamboyant and ecstatic in their public ministries, much more sensational, Paul has intentionally harnessed what might have been personally edifying to him and might have been a joy for him to express in terms of spiritual expressiveness to God. But he harnessed that, his own personal preferences, for the sake of helping the Corinthians know the joy Of loving the Lord with all of their hearts. Not in some concocted outward ecstatic experience. That would have been easily used to drum up a crowd. But Paul harnessed those things for the sake of the Corinthians being persuaded. They may dance and prance around the platform. And dim the lights or use mood music or drum up ecstasy through other sorts of techniques, but Paul is, verse 13, of sound mind for you. He harnessed on purpose the methodology he used for the sake of the Corinthians being persuaded. It's so easy to drum up enthusiasm without substance, but we all know that that won't sustain us in a life of perseverance in the faith. A true encounter with God in Christ, though, will transform our character into his likeness and satisfy our souls with his love without the need for anything close to a pep rally. If we truly encounter the risen Jesus as Paul did and as he sought to help the Corinthians to do in the gospel of Christ, then we will be changed. Verses 14 and 15 round out the first portion of this passage by adding a further support Paul's motive in ministry so that's our big point number one Paul's motivation in ministry the fear of the Lord seeking to help the Corinthians being of sound mind for them giving the Corinthians verse 12 an opportunity to be able to answer the opponents that spoke against him verse 11 tells us the motive of the fear of the Lord but verse 14 and 15 ground Paul's motives in in another area the love of Christ oh don't you love verse 14 for the love of Christ controls us oh to be controlled oh to be dominated by the love of Christ but look how this control in verse 14 works verse 14 for the love of Christ controls us having concluded this that one died for all therefore all died 15 and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Like verse 13, verse 14 also begins with the word for in the Greek gar, revealing that it's a further reason for the Corinthians to be able to answer Paul's opponents. Unlike his accusers, why does Paul insist on putting others, in this case the Corinthians, before himself, in his ministry, what is his motivation for doing that? To put, put it simply. He's controlled by the love of Christ, verse fourteen, which manifests itself in loving others the way Christ loves. So how does Christ love? By giving himself, in service, to others. The way we love like Christ loves, is by giving ourself away in loving service to His people. When our hearts are captured by Christ's love for us, the evidence will be shown in our laying down our lives for others, for their good, for their eternal good. How contrary was that to the pattern of Paul's opponents? Paul had a gospel ethic The love of Christ controlling him. And the others had a worldly ethic. Love for self controlling them. Notice that verse 14 is not Paul's love for Jesus. Rather, it's Christ's love for him. It's the subjective genitive. The love of Christ controls us. So isn't it striking to reflect on the fact that in the very same passage, where Paul spoke of standing before Christ's judgment seat to give an account for how he had lived his life on this side of eternity, verse 10, and knowing the fear of the Lord, verse 11, that Paul proceeds from there to affirm that the love of Christ controls him. How can you have fear and judgment and love in one context? It's because Christianity, friends, stands in a category all by itself. I know people like to do charts where they do comparative analysis of world religions and they put Christianity in one column and other religions in other columns but Christianity cannot be compared to any other worldview or religion it's so beautifully distinct from every other alternative the gospel alone creates such a full orb view of a life united to God in Christ as we find in this passage yes the fear of Christ is something that we know, verse 11. But we also know that the one we fear is feared because he's the one who willingly gave himself away in love for us. He's motivating us by his love to give ourself in loving service to others. Paul is insinuating a question something like this. How could we claim to follow Christ who gave himself up for our everlasting good if we do not also give ourselves up for the everlasting good of others? Connecting verse 14 back to verse 13 with the word for at the beginning of verse 14, it works like this. To be right-minded, verse 13, about life is to live one's whole life in light of the love-saturated, substitutionary atonement of Jesus on our behalf. Verses 14 and 15. This is Paul's humble confidence in defending his apostleship. It is the way that he knows he lives, and he has a clear conscience about it. In the midst of defending that apostleship, why is he so willingly giving himself in service to others? Well, Paul goes on to unfurl one of the most beautiful portraits of the purpose of God in the eternal work of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. Verse 14b and 15. One died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul is talking about Christ's gospel accomplishments being the pattern of his apostolic ministry, but what a statement about the gospel. We ought to ask ourselves when we meditate on these verses who is the all for whom the one in verse 14 and 15 died? It's none other than the all, verse 14, who also died. And the verse 15, they. Who live. Scott Hafeman said the all in verse 14. Must be limited to God's people. Oh beloved. How I want us. To take hold of the gospel logic. Of verse 14 and 15. Is a most precious truth. It will stun you. With the wonder of God's love for you in Christ. What we find here. Is not. That you're believing makes Christ's cross effective in your life. Your faith does not activate Jesus' death for you. No, no. Jesus' death for you is of such potency and such efficacy that His death on your behalf guaranteed the activation of your faith. Do you see it? We preach a gospel that is the power of God. Romans one sixteen. We preach the truth that all for whom Jesus died are in view in verses 14 and 15. Such that we can declare with worshiping wonder, they who live do not live for themselves, but for him who died for them, because he died and rose again on their behalf. What I'm saying is we have a redeemer in verses 14 and 15 who actually redeemed. The death of Jesus actually did the work, accomplished the the design that God intended for it to do in his Tour de Force introduction to John Owen's Puritan work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, J.I. Packer wrote in an introduction to Owen's book, putting it as well as I have ever heard it put. Packer says, what matters is that we understand the gospel biblically, and we can now see what has gone wrong. Our theological currency has been debased. Our minds have been "...conditioned to think of the cross as a redemption which does less than redeem, and of Christ as a Savior who does less than save, and of God's love as a weak affection which cannot keep anyone from hell without help, and of faith as the human help which God needs for this purpose. As a result, we're no longer free either to believe the biblical gospel or to preach it. Instead, we involve ourselves in a bewildering kind of double-think about salvation." telling ourselves at one moment that it all depends upon God and the next moment that it all depends upon us. We want to magnify the saving grace of God and the saving power of Christ. So we declare that God's redeeming love extends to every man and that Christ died to save every man. And we proclaim that the glory of divine mercy is to be measured by these facts. And then, in order to avoid universalism, we have to depreciate all that we were previously extolling. And to explain that, after all, nothing that God and Christ have done can save us unless we add something to it. The decisive factor which actually saves in this line of reasoning is our own believing. What we say, Packer concludes, comes to this. That Christ saves us with our help. And what that means, when one thinks about it, is this. That we save ourselves. With Christ's help. This is a hollow anticlimax. So Scott Haifman nailed it in his commentary on these verses. We must be careful not to reduce Christ's death. To a transaction between God and Jesus in heaven. That is intended to help people. Only if they will cooperate. Do you see the purpose for which Christ died? And friends do you believe that he actually accomplished that purpose? The purpose of verse 15. One died for all, so that, so that, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Saints, when we are gripped by the gospel, we are glad to give ourselves to the one who accomplished it all on our behalf. Jesus died for you. In Paul's apostolic defense, he's essentially saying this: the difference between me and between those who accuse me is this. How has the gospel of Christ shaped those who profess to belong to Him? The answer is obvious. My opponents are apparently living for self-promotion, and I am obviously living for Christ promotion. What about you, friends? Who's at the epicenter of your life? For whom do you live? These are the questions about our own conversion. Is the King of Glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again on your behalf the paramount object of your life? Verses eleven to fifteen unpack the motivation that of Paul's ministry. The fear of the Lord, the love of Christ, that instead of living for his own ecstatic pleasures, Paul is rather of sound mind, seeking the eternal welfare of the Corinthians that's laid up for them in the glorious gospel. I have been stunned this week by an insight from one of the commentaries I read that said, What transforms the believer, therefore, is that the judge, verse 10 and 11, is also the Savior, verse 14 and 15. As Matt Smithhurst so powerfully put it, the gospel changes heaven's courtroom proceedings. From a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. And this colors all of our motives. Number two, verses 16 down through 6-2, Paul moves from his motivation to focus on his message. Having laid out his motivations for ministry, Paul then turns to the message that he proclaims. Beloved. You will not find a more profound statement of the Gospel anywhere in the Bible than in the latter portion of second Corinthians chapter five, while it is so gospel rich paul paul's point is to give a further defense of his apostleship again by unpacking the message that he proclaims. So what does it mean in verse sixteen? Look at that, therefore, from now on, we recognize. No one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him in this way no longer. Well, this has to be a consequence of the gospel that uh, Paul had just unpacked in verses 14 and 15 because it begins with that connecting word, therefore. So, how does it connect? Well, first, the word flesh in verse 16. We know no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, is... Uh, A word that is translated 48 different ways in the NIV. 48! And to their credit, I believe that they totally got it right in this verse. The NIV translates it this way. We recognize no one from a worldly point of view. Here's the meaning. Because of the work of Christ in the gospel, verse 14 and 15, Paul no longer looks at any human being from a worldly perspective. Prior to his conversion, he used to look at Jesus himself from that vantage point. But because of his being converted, born again, through Christ, Paul thought that, uh, totally differently about Jesus. Previously, he would have thought, as a Pharisee, that that man Jesus he had heard about died for his own sins, that he deserved his die. But isn't it amazing what an encounter with Christ will do to a grown man. On the road to Damascus, Paul's carnal views of Jesus were obliterated for all eternity. A love relationship with Jesus had changed everything about everything. And when you encounter the one who overcame the grave, you can no longer look at people from a vantage point that only understands their life on this side of the grave. Everyone that you and I ever meet will live forever somewhere. And there are two and only two radically different eternities in which our fellow men will reside. And when you and I meet Christ, we no longer recognize anyone according to the flesh. Paul would have previously thought, as I mentioned, that Jesus died for his own sins. He knew, Deuteronomy 21, that it was a curse for anyone to hang upon a tree. And he knew, after his conversion, that when Christ was suspended on the tree of Calvary, that he became a curse for us, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. Instead of viewing Christ from a worldly perspective any longer, Paul now melted at the foot of the cross, beneath the realization that the one who hung on it Became a curse to take away his own sin. The reason Paul doesn't look at the outward appearance any longer. Verse 12. And judge people according to the flesh only. Is because of what Christ has done in the gospel. Verse 14 and 15. That's why the next verse follows. Verse 17. Therefore if anyone is in Christ he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold new things have come. Once again. Another verse in this passage begins with the word therefore. This time it's hoste. So Paul is connecting his statement in verse 17 to his prior statement in verse 16, meaning something like this: We no longer think of anyone from a worldly, fleshly vantage point, perspective, point of view, because of what the gospel does to a person. Therefore, by Christ's death and resurrection, we are new creatures. The old is gone. The new has come. Everything is changed. The new creation of redemption through Christ is a greater, more cataclysmic work than the work he accomplished in the creation of the universe. We are a new creation in Christ. Even though we don't yet experience the kingdom of God in all of its glory, verses 1 to 10 of chapter 5, we nevertheless have tasted the glories of the age to come. We know that we are now on a trajectory to live in the new heavens and the new earth. And we've already begun to experience the foretaste of that glory to come. So how would one know for sure, verse 17, that they are in Christ? I believe Scott Haifman helps us so much in his meditation on this verse. For Paul, the real evidence of the glory of the new creation at work in our life of being in Christ is not spiritual ecstasy. Verse 13. But rather, moral transformation. Verse 17. One can legitimately argue that the personal transformation brought about by the Spirit. As believers behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. Chapter 3 verse 18. Chapter 4 verse 4. Chapter 4 verse 6. As they focus on eternal things, not temporal. 4.18. As believers behold the glory of Christ. This is the evidence... That one is part of the new creation spoken of in verse 17. Oh, what a beautiful truth. So how does this happen? How does somebody get to be in Christ? Verse 18. God does it. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God did it. God did it. On the cross, God accomplished it for us to reconcile us to himself through Christ. Paul didn't do it. The Corinthians didn't do it. You didn't do it. You are in Christ if you are in him because God did it by the gospel. And God did it by the gospel that Paul preached. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that he had preached to them this glorious work of salvation in jesus and that god the holy spirit took the work of god the son and applied it to the lives of the corinthians according to the plan of god the father for the glory of god alone by god's doing all these things are from god the only way a person is transformed from self-love to self and self-absorption and using others for selfish gain into a person who burns with a motivation that is fully aware of Christ's love for him and therefore glad to lay down his life in service toward others for Jesus' sake. The only way that transformation happens is by the Creator God wielding His new creation power to redeem us. Verse 18 and 19 says that once God does such a work, He entrusts to those who receive that work the ministry of reconciliation. Now Paul is specifically speaking of his apostleship that God gave to him and the apostles the ministry of reconciliation and committed to them the word of reconciliation. There's no way it was possible for Paul to preach anything other than the glorious gospel as the means of sinners being made right with God. He had been gripped by the Savior and he was therefore determined to know nothing among the Corinthians except Christ and him crucified. Paul says that if the reconciling of sinners to God happened in the cross, uh, pardon me, Paul says that the reconciling of sinners to God that happened in the cross happened because God did it. But look at verse 18 and 19. God is both the subject and the indirect object of the gospel's aim. And not to take you into literature class, but God is the subject and the direct object. Look at 18. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God is the goal of the gospel. The word world in verse 19 refers to all the peoples of the world. Jew and Gentile. Not the planet. Not the the ball of dirt on which we live. The world Although there are plenty of places in Scripture that do speak of the entire cosmos being reconciled to God through the cross, in fact, even the heavens being reconciled to God through the cross of Christ. But here, Paul is emphatically saying that God did the work at the cross to bring people into a reconciled relationship with himself. God is therefore both the subject and the indirect object of the work of Christ at Calvary. Bottom line, your salvation is not primarily for you. It is for God. And Paul understood that. And Paul sought to live his life in a way that demonstrated that all the work that God had ever done in Paul was for God, not for himself. How precious is the gospel. Instead of counting our trespasses against us, verse 19, God reconciled us to himself. Oh, bring your heart to the foot of the cross again and ask with the psalmist, If the Lord should mark iniquities, who should stand? If he counted our trespasses against us, verse 19, who would survive the good news of the gospel? is that you get to be called God's child by your name, not excluded from God's family by your sin. Because God in Christ does not count your trespasses against you. So verse 20 makes sense next, doesn't it? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul's appeal in this verse is the only possible response that flows from his meditation on God's love for him in the gospel and being entrusted as God's minister of reconciliation as one of his apostles. Paul begs others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God because he self-consciously Christ's ambassador. He has been enlisted in Christ's service to represent the king. The word ambassador is definitely a diplomatic word. It's altogether astonishing that this former enemy of the cross who persecuted the church of God was won to God's heart of love and reconciled to him by the very cross that he had formerly despised. Then he himself was enlisted as Christ's representative to those who are still his enemies, so that they also would receive the gospel message that he proclaimed. As Christ's happy ambassador, Paul is confident that if God can save him, God can save anyone. So he'll beg everyone to meet God in Christ. If God can save the worst sinner in Paul's mind, namely himself, then he can save you too. Paul is therefore moved to plead with men on Christ's behalf. To be reconciled to God. Look at those words. We beg you. How opposite is that approach? Than that of the so-called apostles and prophets who had come into Corinth and were boasting in themselves and in their eloquence and in their rhetorical skill. Paul is here. Not seen in a power suit standing before people on a platform giving some kind of impressive oratory. He is rather seen on his knees pleading and begging with the Corinthians instead of lording authority over them he is getting beneath them seeking to push them up into heaven and to lift them up to the face of Christ. This is what the gospel does to a man. Then Paul unleashes one of the most breathtaking declarations of the gospel of Christ in the entire Bible. The next verse where Paul goes on to unpack the message that he proclaims, is the capstone verse for the all-important doctrine of double imputation. Verse 21 is the epicenter of the biblical theme of the imputed righteousness of Christ to those who believe. Verse 21, memorize it, friends. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Here is a whole body of divinity. With Isaiah 53, obviously is the background in Paul's mind. Jesus is here being portrayed as the sin offering, the Lamb upon whom God laid our iniquity, the perfect sacrifice, but more, Jesus is presented in this verse not only as a sin offering but as sin itself. Look at it. The suffering servant became the sacrifice for our sin and he was treated not as a sinner but as sin. All the vehement indignation of God against that which sought to rob him of his glory. All of his violent antagonistic incensed anger against sin is here pictured as being directed against Jesus God took the death blow to Jesus on the cross as if Jesus in all of his holy fury against every affront sin had ever made against God's character was now being embodied In Jesus as sin itself. God took the death blow to Jesus on the cross as if Jesus were sin itself. Jesus on the cross absorbed the unrestrained strike of God. In His sinless body, Jesus took the judgment for your sin and mine. All of it the terror of God's holiness against sin was the cup that was handed to Jesus to drink on the cross down to the last drop. Dear ones, have you reckoned with the agonies of Calvary lately? Let Donald McLeod help you. As he meditates on the cross, he says, this is a moment of unsustainable awfulness. Abba is out of reach for Jesus. He is no longer listening. The intimacy between son and father is broken. An intimacy that had never been broken before. Like Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, father and son had at Calvary gone up together. And throughout his life, Jesus had been assured that he was never alone, but that the Father was with him, John 8, 29. But now, at the ninth hour, Abba was not there. And Jesus can no longer cry, Father, but for the first and only time, expressing his trust, he rather cries out, Eloi, my God. God is certainly there, but he is not there as Abba. There is now no sense to Jesus, of his own divine sonship. No sense of God's love. No sense of the Father's approval. God is not hearing him. Jesus cries, but there is no answer. God even seems to mock his trust, Psalm eight. Trouble is near, but there is no one to help him, Psalm 22.11. There are no comfortable scriptures to fill his mind, nor any assurance of ultimate victory, nor any vision of a redeemed multitude too great to count. At every other time of crisis, Abba had spoken great words of encouragement to his son. This is my beloved son, in whom uh, whom I love. Mark 1. But now, no such words came. Jesus hears only the derision of the spectators, the curses of the soldiers, and the whispers of the prince of darkness, he is on his own. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Dear ones, the Son of God was forsaken utterly by the Father at the cross so that you would never have to be. But verse 21 is teaching that Jesus did not die only to make you morally neutral. He did not become sin for you so that you could merely have your slate wiped clean and be forgiven. If all your sin gets removed, you still don't get to heaven when you die. You don't only need to be neutral, you must be made righteous. Part of the good news of the gospel, and a glorious part indeed, is that Jesus became sin for you to take your sin away. But that's not the best part of the good news. The best part of the good news is that Jesus not only became your substitute, taking your judgment, but that he credits to you his own righteousness. For all who flee to him for forgiveness and reconciliation, this verse tells us why God can accept us in his presence forever, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless life of Jesus, he who knew no sin, is what is credited to the account of believers when they embrace the risen Jesus by faith. We get the full measure of the active obedience of Christ deposited into our account. His 33 and a half years of filling up all righteousness, his living the life that we were supposed to live, his loving God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, all of his law keeping, all of his obedience and love to the Father, all of his love to his neighbor as himself, all of his righteousness is what is declared to belong to us. Us upon conversion. When God sees us in Christ, one commentator said, He sees the perfection of Christ having already been granted to us as a gift. Even though our being made perfect in Christ is still to come at the consummation of the age when we will finally see Christ face to face. O oh, glorious gospel, O oh, fountain of love, this is why Paul is concerned that the Corinthians are being seduced by outside accusers who sought to discredit his ministry. Paul knew that if they defected from Paul's gospel, let's be clear, they're defecting from God. That's why Paul's so adamant about defending his apostleship by unveiling the message that he proclaims. If you defect from this gospel, there's no hope you. for you. That's why 6.1 follows immediately after. Working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Not to receive the grace of God in vain. The grace of God is a reference back to the gospel Paul had just unpacked from verses 14, 15 all the way down through verse 21. But we know that in Corinth there were problems. There were serious problems. Yes, they were at each other's throat and abusing spiritual gifts and playing preferential treatment with their favorite preachers and apostles. But the worst problem was that they were more than one click off true north. When it came to fidelity to the gospel. And they were in danger of apostatizing. 2 Corinthians 11.4 makes that plain. Paul says they beautifully welcomed. Preachers who came to their church. And quote proclaimed another Jesus. And quote a different spirit. And quote a different gospel. So yes. Like the Galatians. The Corinthians too were in danger. Of making shipwreck of their faith. And of receiving. The grace of God in vain. That's why Paul unleashed his gospel message in the preceding verses. He was putting the Corinthians to the test by explicating his gospel in as clear and concise terms as possible. And if they traded on that Jesus for 2 Corinthians 11:4 another Jesus, then they would have received the grace of God in vain. That is, if they didn't persevere in the faith by beholding the glory of Jesus that Paul preached. Chapter 3, chapter 4. If they did not continue to live for the one who died and rose again on their behalf, chapter 5, then they should have no ground on which to stand to suppose that their judgment day, 510, before Christ would be favorable. Paul knew that he was an apostle, and he knew that it was important to defend his apostleship. In chapter 6, verse 1, he actually says, I am God's fellow worker. That means he was working to serve the Corinthians. To keep them from falling away from Christ. Charles Simeon asked about that verse. If God should come to you and entreat you by a voice from heaven, would you still refuse him? Know then, Paul says, that God is talking to you and beseeching you through us. Paul knew that when he spoke to the churches, he spoke as if God himself had showed up to speak to them. As though God were making an appeal through us, verse twenty, as God's fellow worker, chapter six, verse one. That's why our final verse, chapter six, verse two, citing from Isaiah forty nine, eight, fits perfectly. Verse two, for he says at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Like Isaiah whom Paul was citing in this verse, Paul understood that in the unfolding plan of God's redemptive purposes in history, Paul had been uniquely appointed to an apostolic role by the same God that Isaiah served. And Paul knew that the Spirit of God was speaking through him, just like the Spirit of God was speaking through Isaiah, Whenever Paul ministered the gospel in his preaching and in his writing, he was Christ's ambassador. Putting it together, Paul knew that the Corinthians were the fulfillment of everything in Isaiah's vision, in the passage in Isaiah 49, that the day of salvation that Isaiah prophesied about had come to fruition in the day of Christ. So Paul could grab that verse and put it in front of the Corinthians and say, to reject this message is to reject the whole saving plan that God had been talking about in the days of Isaiah and is being fulfilled now in the gospel of Christ. Haifman said it this way, to reject Paul and his message is to be cast outside the fear, sphere of God's saving work because Paul is now working together with God like Isaiah did as an instrument of God's salvation. Friends, I leave you with these applications. I trust and pray that God's already brought them home to your heart. Let me just shine a light briefly on some of them. Number one, stand in awe of the gospel. If you've lost the wonder of the cross, then take a protracted look at it. One died for all. Therefore, all died. And He did it so that you would no longer live for yourself, but for Him. Look at the subject and indirect object of the gospel. Look at the fact that God... Did the work in Christ for God. Look at the gospel until you see that its primary audience is not you, but God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Stand in awe of the gospel. But number two, receive Jesus. I beg you. I'm seeking to persuade you. Verse 11, I'm begging you, verses 19 to 21, what a tragedy it would be for somebody to think about the cross like we've done for an hour without embracing the Redeemer who hung upon it and who rose again from the dead to reconcile you with God. What a tragedy. So don't miss Jesus. Receive Him. Embrace Him by faith. Third, bring every aspect of life into subjection to Christ. All of life. If you could draw a circle around the entirety of your life, is there any aspect of it that is outside subjection to Jesus? Jesus died for you so that you would live to Him. Dying to self. Dying to self-promotion. Dying to self-righteousness. Living to Christ the life of true joy, both now and forevermore. How do you bring every aspect of life into subjection to Christ? You look at the fear of the Lord. You look at the fact that He's our everlasting judge. But it's not a trepidation to stand before Him. It's actually an anticipation because of verse 14. He loves you. Be absorbed in Christ's love for you until you love Him back with that same agape and until you love others with His love. Immerse yourself in the life of Christ until you are motivated, like He did, to lay your life down in service to others for their good and for God's glory. So third was bring every aspect of life into subjection to Christ. And the final is obvious. Proclaim this gospel. Tell this good news. Beg people. Urge people. Persuade people. Those are words from our text. Tell people, today is the day of salvation. The candle of this light, life will soon burn out. And it will be everlastingly too late for everyone who has not met God in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Today, right now. Turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. The risen Savior is soon to return. Oh, may God cause us to be His faithful ambassadors. Father, be glorified by taking this message and making it useful for those who hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.